If you'll find your place with me today in uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, we began a message last week about the Good Samaritan, and I want to finish it here today. And I'll review with you uh, the three points that we made from last week, but then I want us to spend the bulk of our time looking at three additional points that we want to add to this message. We're focusing for a few weeks on the basics of our Christianity. Uh, we, we have a Bible reading plan that we put out for everybody to read through the Scripture. If you're behind, it's okay. Jump in where we are right now and start forward with us. We believe every Christian should be reading his or her Bible. I challenged you about prayer in a previous message because one of the fundamentals of the Christian life is praying. And we, we looked at the prayer of Jabez and how we can pray and ask God for, for great things. And in these two messages, we're talking about, if you will, evangelism, that our responsibility is to love where we live. That is to love the people around us where we live, in our networks, in our community, in our neighborhoods. God wants to use us as his instrument to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to talk about this subject, we're talking from the story of the Good Samaritan. So let me refresh your memory for just a moment. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's talking with his disciples. Obviously, uh, there are many occasions when Jesus is talking to and teaching his disciples that there's other people that are listening, probably a large number of people that are watching and listening as Jesus is instructing. In, in the midst of this instruction, there's a lawyer who, I guess, raises his hand and says, I've got a question. And he wants to know how to inherit eternal life. And a pattern begins. There's a question asked by the lawyer. There's a counter question that's asked by Jesus. Uh, there's an answer that comes from the lawyer. And then there's a command that comes from Jesus. And that pattern gets repeated twice, once at the beginning and then once through the story of the Good Samaritan. It gets repeated twice. And it's, it's a means of instructing. It's a, it's a uh, an first century way of, of talking about matters and subjects so that we can help people to understand what they're asking and they can get a deeper understanding of the truth that's being communicated. And so th this lawyer, who is a student of the Mosaic law, he's more than just a student, he's knowledgeable of the Mosaic law, he might even be considered an expert in the Mosaic law, has a question to ask of Jesus, verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know he's interested in how to have life, how to have life eternal. A little bit later, Jesus will point that out. He'll say it very specifically, do this and you'll live. If you, if you want to have eternal life, do this and you'll live. So he's asking a very important question. It's a question everybody should ask. How can I know that I'm right with God? How can I know that I have eternal life? But rather than answer the question, Jesus counters his question, verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? In other words, he's going to probe this man. What do you know? What do you understand? I want you to explain what your understanding of the Old Testament says about how you can have eternal life. Well, the man answers. Here's the third step in this process. The man answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, th these two great commands summarize all of the 600-plus commands of the Old Testament. Uh, those commands have to do with a relationship, the Old Testament commands, have to do with a relationship toward God or a relationship toward mankind. 
They're either vertical in nature or they're horizontal in nature. And he summarizes them all down into the two great commandments. Both of these commandments are found in the Old Testament in this general fashion, as a summary fashion, and he picks them up and he quotes them. you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. I mean, every ounce of your being has to love God, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus is going to answer uh, this, man's, uh, quest, this man's answer. He goes on, verse 28, And he, that's Jesus, said to him, What you answered rightly, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Now, I just want you to know, theoretically, if you could obey the law of God perfectly, theoretically, you would have eternal life. Practically, there is nobody. Technically, there is nobody who can obey the law of God perfectly. The reason is because we're all sinners. Can can you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind every moment of every day without ever failing at any point, at any time for the entirety of your life? The answer is no. Uh, Can you love your neighbor as yourself every moment of every day, never having a moment's failure throughout the course of your entire life? The answer is absolutely not. But Jesus is right in saying, hypothetically, you think you can do this, then okay, you do these things and you'll live. And what it should have brought about was conviction in this man's heart. But instead, he's going to ask another question that's going to lead to a counter question. Verse 29, but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, he's trying to clarify. Now, Lord, surely you don't mean everybody. I mean, I couldn't love everybody like I love myself. That, that wouldn't be possible. I, I, I got to know who my neighbor is because I got some that are neighbors to me and some that, if you will, are non-neighbors. Surely I don't have to love those people. Automatically, the man's exposing the reality that he's a what? He's a sinner. He, he's looking for a, a classification of, of people that he has to love. Well, Jesus counters that question with the story, one of the most famous stories in the New Testament, the story of the Good Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And we learn, first of all, if we're going to love where we live, we have to open our eyes and see. The the Levite and the priest saw, but they didn't really see. It was the Samaritan who really saw the condition of this man who had been beaten and who had been left to die along the side of the street. The second thing we learned is that we have to open our hearts and feel. He had compassion on him. It is to feel what this other person feels, to try to walk in the other person's shoes so that you, you can understand the circumstances in which they find themselves. He opened, we have to open our hearts and feel if we're going to love where we live. But, but then you notice in verse 34, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The third thing that we talked about was that he opened his hands and helped. He opened his hands and helped. Previously, how had their hands been? 
Basically, this is what they looked like. The Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. They did not get along with each other. But he had to open his hands, and he had to help. And so we open our eyes and see, we open our hearts and feel, and we open our hands and help. If we're going to love where we live, those are things that have to happen. But fourthly, if we're going to love where we live, we have to open our wallets and give. Now you know why I wanted this service today. <laughs> we have to open our wallets and give. I want you to notice what it goes on to say, verse 35. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, that's the equivalent of two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeepers. The first thing he does is he pays the innkeeper, going to take care of him for a period of time, and if he has to stay longer than is necessary, then, then I've paid you. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. What did he do? He opened his wallet and he gave. We have to open our eyes and see. We have to open our hearts and feel. We have to open our hands and help. We have to open our wallets and give. You realize that the work of God requires resources. It doesn't just happen. My mother used to say, you, you can't plant, uh, you know, money in the backyard and watch it grow. Uh, or she'd say it this way, money doesn't grow on trees. That's her saying. Money doesn't grow on trees. How many of your parents ever said that to you? Money doesn't grow on trees, Davy. And that meant, you know, you've got to take care of what you've got. And the reality is you, we can't go out and plant a dollar bill out here somewhere in the ground and somehow it's going to grow up into a tree or a bush and it's going to produce more dollar bills. You have to have people that are willing to give, people that are willing to participate, people that are willing to share of their resources to enable the work of God to go forward, to be able to help us to love where we live. I was thinking about our church, and I just wanted to take a moment and brag on you for a moment. I don't normally do this, as giving is something that you try to keep private. Nobody knows uh, what you're giving or what you're not giving. I don't know what anybody gives in the church. I like that to be the principle that we follow even as a congregation as a whole. So while we do a lot of things over the course of a year, I don't like to talk about those kind of things because if you get your reward in public then you lose your reward before the Lord, right? So I don't like to talk about those things very often, but I want to take a moment, I want to brag on you for just a moment. Do you realize in the last three years in our Christmas offering that we have given $270,000 through World Help and Samaritan's Purse to purchase animals, to purchase the, the wells that are needed to be dug, to per purchase filters, to, to build hospitals, $270,000 out of just Christmas offerings have been given to help those who are in great need. Did you know that our church helped a local church financially when they went through a terrible flood and had to recover, and we were a part of participating to help them financially to be able to get back up and running and back on their feet? Did you know that we give to the Huntington City Mission. In the last three years, we've given almost $150,000 to help people that are indigent or those that are homeless or those that are recovering from addictions of various kinds. Do you realize that, that our church has been generous in that fashion to help people and to work with people who are so desperately in need of the gospel? Or think about the Gideons. Do you realize over the last couple of years, we've given $7,000 to the, to the printing and the distribution of Bibles. 
uh, in our own community and for that matter around the world. And at every funeral, instead of purchasing flowers for our loved ones when they passed, we, we place Gideon Bibles. You realize how important that is? Uh, you know, in a hospital room or in a hotel room or to a military man or a medical person or to a student. You remember when you got your New Testament in, in the sixth grade, probably about the sixth grade, when the Gideon came to your room? You can't do that anymore. But when they came to your classroom and they handed out the New Testament, I still have mine. Any of you still have yours? And in that Gideon New Testament, the plan of salvation and the reason why we give them it, the death of our, our loved ones is so that they are remembered for not just a few hours or a few days with flowers, but those Bibles last up to 10 years in a hotel room or in a hospital room or even longer in some cases. And our prayer is that somebody will pick up one of those New Testaments or one of those Bibles, read the plan of salvation, understand that Jesus loves them, and come to faith in Christ. And then there's rejoicing on earth. And where is the other rejoicing? It's in the presence of the angels. That, wouldn't, that be, wouldn't that be cool to be in heaven and the Bible placed in your memory, bring somebody to faith in Christ, and you're rejoicing and they're rejoicing at the same time? Or, or think about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families that we've helped through LifeBridge over the last several years. Can you believe that Clyde and Charlie have gone to heaven? And yet they were the origin of, of that ministry some 20 years or so ago of helping literally thousands of families for a, a, a meal, to be able to have food, to provide a meal or clothes to put on their backs or somehow to be able to have furniture when they get burned out of a house. Or think about what we're doing now down at Ebenezer and the outreaches there. Or think about the backpacks and the brown bags and the, the increasing numbers that we reach in that way. Or th think about Operation Christmas child in the shoe boxes. Do you know that we've given thousands and thousands of shoe boxes to children around the world? Or, or think about Vacation Bible School or our backpack kids that we feed, uh, it, which is an ever-growing number. And I've got a list here that I asked to be prepared because I just wanted to look at it. Why? Because if we're going to love where we live, not only do we have to open our eyes and see and open our hearts and feel and open our hands and help, we have to open our wallets and give. Yeah, you can do something individually on your own, and I encourage you to do that, but you understand that when you join with us collectively, we can do so much more as a church family. We can do so much more significant, so many more significant things as a church family, because together, and that doesn't count any of our faith promise giving, more than $300,000 a year that we give to the cause of missions to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I, I just want to stop and I want to say thank you, church. Through a pandemic when we couldn't even have services, to a year afterwards when we had limited services, to a new year when we're trying to rebuild services, you've been faithful. You've been consistent. We've had to change the way we give. We no longer pass offering plates. We'll never do that again. We were wanting to find a way to do that, to, to do away with that anyway. Uh, to, the passing the offering plates, not the offering. We, we were looking for a way to do away with the passing of the offering place before a pandemic ever, ever hit us, and the Lord took care of it for us. 
If people give online and they give through the boxes that are around the walls or, or they mail it in or they stop by the office or I don't know all the different ways that you can give, but people are giving. And I, I, I just want to say to our church, helping, thank you for helping us at Lewis Memorial Baptist Church love where we live. Love where we live. We're loving people here in our own community. We're loving people around the world through our consistent giving. The Samaritan took his own clothing. He took his own wine. He took his own oil. He took his own animal. And he took his own money to help a broken man. And that's what people do who understand that their role in life is to help rescue those, to be the instrument of God, to rescue those that are in need. There's a moving story about a man who was working in a shoe store in Europe. It was during the wintertime, and he noticed a barefoot little boy outside the baker's shop next door. He was trying to keep warm, the little boy. He was trying to keep warm by standing on a grate that was blowing up hot air outside the bakery. The shoe store owner was surrounded by all these shoes, but he wasn't certain about what he should do. And about that time, a middle-aged lady walked by and saw the boy trying to keep his feet warm. She bent down. She spoke kind words to the child. She brought him into the shoe store and bought him some new shoes and socks. As the boy, shivering in the cold, put on these warm shoes and socks, he said to the lady, Are you God's wife? She said, No, son. I'm just one of his children. And he smiled and said, Well, I knew you had to be kin to him somehow. When you have compassion, you realize everybody is your neighbor. And just like Jesus, you're willing to help. Even with your finances, you have to see. You have to open your eyes and see. You have to open your heart and feel. You have to open your hands and help. You have to open your wallets and give. And I'm thankful that we're a part of a church that isn't building a reservoir, a war chest for our own, for our own benefit, that we are a church that is a channel through which God is taking resources out to others and helping others in their time of need. Aren't you thankful to be a part of a congregation of people like that? Say amen. The fifth thing I want you to notice about this story is that we have to open our schedules and serve. This good Samaritan, have you noticed the story? He didn't just open his eyes and see and open his heart and feel and open his hands and help and open his wallet and give. But did you notice that he opened his schedule to serve? I don't know where the priest was going and I don't know where the Levite was going but they apparently were in a rush to get there. They couldn't take time to help one of their own, one of their own countrymen at a moment of deep crisis, and yet the Samaritan didn't feel that way. I'm sure the Samaritan was just as busy. He had just as many things to do. He had just as many places to go, just as much to accomplish. He, he was on a mission. He was headed somewhere in the process when he comes to this man that's along the side of the road. But this man opened his schedule. And he said, you know what I've got to do? I've got to serve. My role and my responsibility is to serve. I was looking at some of the statistics that were pre-pandemic. One of the great problems we have in churches today is that we have too, too, too many people that are like the priest and the Levite. 
A Gallup survey, which is a pre-COVID Gallup survey, discovered that only 10% of American church members are active in any kind of personal ministry. And 50% of all church members have no interest in serving in any ministry. In other words, that means that half of any given church is saying, we just don't want to get involved. Now, I'm grateful to tell you that, again, our church far exceeds those percentages. And I'm grateful for the many people who get involved. But what if everybody did their part? You know, I don't think we're going to change the world until we get as excited uh, about the church and the work of God through his church as we are about winning championships. And we are about basketball and football and the Masters and the U.S. Open and uh, you know, the British Open. Or to we're as excited about the, uh, the, the work of God and the work of his church as we are about the plays and the practices for our kids. And we're as excited as moms and dads about what God is doing in his church and how God is using our family to make a difference for the cause of Christ using us through the body of believers until we're as excited as we are about the World Series and about the Super Bowl and about the, uh, the, the college championship game, Alabama and Georgia. Did, did I mention that Georgia won that game? <laughs> I, I think I failed to mention that. So let me just say it again. Uh, Georgia beat Alabama. They've only won seven or eight times themselves. Let, let us have a chance every once in a while, would you? Or when Marshall wins the championship games and we get all excited, we wouldn't think of missing a game. We wouldn't think of not being there. We wouldn't think of what, not watching on TV. And we're all excited. We're talking about all these things. And when it comes church on Sunday morning and we say to our kids, okay, kids, let's get up. Let's go. We've got to go listen to the preacher again. We've got to go through those songs again. Let's just get this done. We have to open our schedules. We have to serve. Is it any wonder just a little earlier in this chapter? Just go with me. Chapter 10, look back, back to verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 2. Listen to what Jesus says. Then he said to them, that's to his disciples, the harvest truly is great. Well, do, you, do you see the next words? But the laborers are few. Do you know what the word laborers means? It means somebody who's striving, somebody who's working hard, somebody who has sweat on his brow, somebody who's giving his all. Somebody who's giving everything, but the laborers are few. He says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You realize we pray for you. We pray, oh God, burden his heart. Please burden her heart. Lord, we want them to go to Disney World. We want them to take vacations to the beach. We want them to have weekends where they can have rest. Everybody needs those kinds of times and those kinds of moments in life. But, Lord, we want them to take the work that you're doing through your church as seriously as they take anything else in life. You know how many days your children miss school. It comes to you on a card. They show you how many days. You know how many days you can miss for vacation at work. You know how many days you get for vacation and for sick leave, and you keep up with it. It probably comes on the bottom line of the check, tells you how many days are left. But most people don't know how many days they've just not shown up to church, just not put their hands to the work that's being done, just didn't 
open their schedules and say, you know, today's a day for us to serve God and to give our best to God. We have to open our schedules and serve. We have to get excited about what we're doing for God, that we're investing in something that's eternal. Do you know what's going to happen to that trophy that they won for the national championship game, the college national championship game, football? In football, they're going to have to polish it every so often because it's going to get tarnished. All those hands holding it, do you see it? Did I mention that Georgia won that game? <laughs> all those hands, all those hands holding it, they'll have to polish it, they'll have to polish it, and they'll put it back in the case, and everybody can come by and look at it. But do you realize that when you invest yourself in the work of God, you're laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust and thieves can never bother? You're serving God in a way that makes an eternal difference. During the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, the sailing competitions were underway and their winds were raging at times up to 40 miles an hour. There were two sailors from the Singapore team that were thrown overboard when their boat capsized because of the strong winds. Canada's Lawrence Lemieux was sailing nearby in another race and he saw these two sailors in distress. And one of the sailors was holding on to the boat while the other was being carried away by the strong wind and the strong current. Lemieux left his race to rescue the drifting man who was exhausted from struggling against the strong currents in his weighted sailing jacket. By the time Lemieux finished helping the Singapore team, he had fallen way behind in his own race. But the judges awarded him second place. The position he was in when he went to the sailor's aid and the Olympic Committee gave him a special award for his gallantry. Later, when asked about the incident, Lemieux said, it's the first rule of sailing to help people in distress. Do you realize today we're helping people in distress? Every time we gather as a body of believers, it may be the person sitting next to you. It may be somebody who's downstairs. It may be somebody you'll bump into, on, not with your car, but you'll, you'll bump into on the way off the parking lot as they're coming on the parking lot from the exchange of services. Do you realize that we're helping people? Marriages are being saved. Lives are being changed. People are being called. People are being rescued Sometimes we don't even see it and we don't even know it. And we have to be willing to open our schedules and serve. It wasn't convenient for, for the Good Samaritan to stop what he was doing and to go help this man. He had to change his schedule, but he understood the greater task had to be handled. And he put his hand to the work. But then finally, we have to open our mouths and speak. We have to open our mouths and speak. You say, where do you get that in this particular story? Well, I'm reading between the lines, okay? Will you let me do that? He opened his eyes and he saw. He opened his heart and he felt. He opened his hands and he helped. He opened his wallet and he gave. He opened his schedule and he served. But you have to open your mouths and speak. Do you realize that people need to see Jesus in us, but they need as well to hear about Jesus from us. 
They need not only to see us as a neighbor that really has a commitment to Jesus, they need to hear us enunciate the gospel of Jesus to them. The greatest compassion and love that you can show to a neighbor is to tell them about Jesus Christ. That's why these cards are so important that we gave to you. And if you didn't get one, please pick one up on the way out. Where you write down the neighbors. I have my neighbors on my card. You write down your neighbors, people that are unsaved and unchurched that you're praying for. And you're asking God to give you open doors of opportunity to be able to step in and speak the name of Jesus. That you'll have an opportunity to tell them about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you understand what the primary point of the story of the Good Samaritan is? I'm about to blow you out of the water. It isn't, the primary point isn't for you to recognize that you need to be like the Good Samaritan, though that's an application. Do you, you know what the primary point is? There's a lawyer. He stands up and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus counter questions. What do you think the law says about that? The man says, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you got to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered rightly. Jesus said it. You've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. And at that moment, what he should have done is thrown himself on the mercy and the grace of the almighty God. Because he should have recognized himself as a what? As a sinner in need of the Savior. But what does he do? Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Do you understand the purpose of the story of the Good Samaritan? It was to cause this lawyer to stop and think to himself and recognize that he isn't as good as he thinks he is. And the reality is he needs the Savior just like the man in the ditch needs the Savior. Everybody needs the Savior. We're all sinners. We all come short. As a matter of fact, when you get to the end of this story, notice verse 36. So which of these three do you think was neighbor? He didn't, he didn't even define neighbor and non-neighbor. He, he defines it as an action. Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer answers, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus gives that final command. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let me ask you a problem. Did, let me ask you a question. Did this man now have a problem? He asked the question, who is my neighbor? Because he's trying to distinguish who he has to love and who he doesn't have to love. He knows that in his own heart, he's broken at least the second commandment. And if he's honest with himself, he's broken the first commandment that he quoted. And Jesus says, now I want you to go and do the same thing, the good Samaritan. And can you imagine that man at that moment realizing, I, I, I can't do that. I've not done that. I, I'm guilty. I, I've not been a neighbor to everybody that came across my path that, that I could possibly help. I've not been that kind of a neighbor, especially when that person wasn't of my own brotherhood. 
And the man should have recognized that he was a sinner himself rather than justifying himself. He should have recognized that he was a sinner himself and he should have thrown himself on the, on the mercy and the grace of God. I need forgiveness. I need pardon. I need salvation. Everybody needs a Savior. Amen? Everybody needs a Savior. And we have to open our mouths and we have to speak the gospel to our neighbors. God put you where you are with the people who are in your networks. God put you there as his missionary to reach those people. I may never be able to reach those people, but you are the missionary he's placed there for you to open your eyes and see, for you to open your heart and feel, for you to open your hands and help, for you to open your wallets and give, for, for you to open your schedules and serve, for you to open your mouth and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only should every believer be reading his or her Bible every day, every believer should be praying and seeking God's face in prayer, but every believer should be looking for the opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first people to ascend the 29,035-foot peak of Mount Everest. In the 1990s, Nepal lifted its tight restrictions on climbing that legendary mountain in order to, to boost tourist dollars. And since then, many people have reached the summit, some of them paying more than $60,000 for that experience. One result of this commercial influx, though, has been the erosion of the traditional moral code of mountaineering. In the rush to the top, Amateurs who have paid a fortune for the bragging rights will do anything it takes to get to the summit, even abandoning other climbers. David Sharp was a casualty of this modern mentality in March of 2006. The 34-year-old engineer from Cleveland managed to reach the summit on his own. However, he ran out of oxygen on the way down at the 984 feet from the top mark. As he lay dying, 40 climbers passed him by, too eager to achieve their own goals to take a chance on using up their oxygen on someone else. And as a result, David Sharp froze to death. Ed Vistris, who's a mountain climber who scaled all 14 of the world's tallest peaks, said, Sharp's death is not unique. Passing people who are dying is not uncommon. Unfortunately, there are those who say, it's not my problem. I've spent all this money, and I'm going to the summit. And that self-centered attitude has produced a disgust even in the famous climbers like Sir Edward, Edmund Hillary when he said, on my expedition, there was no way you'd have left a man under a rock to die. There's no way you'd have left a man under a rock to die. Dear church family, we can't leave the people in our community, in our networks, in our neighborhoods to die without Jesus 
without having heard the gospel story. We've got to love where we live and bring people to faith in Jesus Christ.